new variants, a potential surge, and more have us wondering why we're still getting so much new information two and a half years into a pandemic. Well, not to worry. Dr. Mia Teramina with Dooley Health and Care has been with us every step of the way, and she joins us now. Welcome back, doctor. Hey, Sasha. Good to talk with you. I want to start with some of the big news that we have seen here on Team Reset in the past week. That's a swarm of new COVID variants causing some worry. I'm going to list off three that we've got our eyes on. BQ1, BQ1.1, and XBB. Besides alphabet soup, doctor, what else do we need to know about these variants? I'll try to make it as simple as possible. All of these variants kind of come from the common ancestor, which was Omicron BA2. And then eventually from two, we branched off into BA4 and 5. And those have kind of been the predominant variants that we've been seeing as of late. BA.1 and BA.1.1 are direct descendants of BA5. This is a good thing. Um, if this turns out to be what is the predominant variant that is circulating, it's a good thing in that our vaccines, our new bivalent vaccines, are indeed targeting BA4 and BA5 subtypes. So they should give us some protection against BA1 and BA.1.1. So trying to keep the alphabet soup straight here. Yeah. Also branching off of the Omicron BA2 subtype is the B, uh, is the XBB variant. That one's a little bit different, not directly covered in our bivalent vaccine. So time will tell. It's slightly less of a concern at the moment, representing just a few of the cases that we're seeing. But Omicron BA5 in general is coming down, approaching that 60% of cases. It's going to continue to drop. And if indeed what we see dominate this fall and winter is that BA.1.1, get your bivalent boosters, because that's what we're going to need to protect against that particular strain, possibly causing our fall and winter surge. I see. Okay, level with me, doctor. Do you have variant burnout at this point? I do. It is really hard to kind of figure out. <laughs> I don't and, know and how you did that. <laughs> you rhyme them off so quickly. Looking at a map of all of these things, there are dozens and dozens of variants in between that come in this giant algorithm of descendants. But again, we are moving sort of through uh, Omicron being a pandemic of its own. And we haven't seen any new named subtypes or anything that is egregiously different from the Omicron strains that we've been seeing throughout the entire year. We are becoming a little bit concerned as we move down the variant spectrum and get further and further away from the common backbone of the virus itself, that we are very much at risk of losing some of our monoclonal antibody therapies. And that's why the vaccine becomes the most important important tool we have this fall and winter. So sum that up for us then. What is the most important thing that we should know about those variants locally? Locally, they're going to start coming up in numbers and people that have had COVID before are going to be at risk of having COVID again. And now is the time to get your bivalent booster. There continues to be a little bit of miseducation about who is eligible. And to be clear, if you've had at least your primary series and it's been at least two months from any dose of COVID vaccine, 
everyone aged five and up is eligible for a bivalent booster right now. It's not just immune suppressed. It's not just those over 50. It's all of us. And this is the booster we are going to need for the best chance of protecting what's going around and what's most likely going to be going around this fall and winter. Another COVID story that's on our radar this week, Doctor, it comes out of the New York Times. Uh, it refers to this season as a possible triple-demic. So along with this swarm of new COVID variants that we just talked about, we've got the nasty flu season and a third virus that we've talked about here on the program called RSV. Remind us what that is, Doctor. So respiratory syncytial virus is another respiratory virus that we do see sporadically and during viral seasons, but often in little kids. And, you know, in general, it it certainly can be very severe and it can be life-threatening in some cases, but we don't typically see it in older kids and adults. What we are seeing, though, is you know, kind of a combination of lack of exposure to these viruses over the last couple of years, us all being socially distanced and wearing masks. A lot of our own immune systems haven't been exposed to viruses like RSV. And yes, absolutely. We are already seeing adults, especially those with health conditions and immunocompromise, becoming very seriously ill with respiratory syncytial virus uh, in the hospital right now. Um, The options for treatment are limited. We've got supportive care measures, of course, but sometimes we have to get into our immune modulating drugs and certain antivirals that have some effect against it. But we have to hope beyond all hope that patients have uh, sort of enough reserve to get through a crisis like this when they're immune suppressed. Would you agree with the term I mentioned earlier? Would you say that we're at a triple-demic right now? We're not at a triple-demic at this moment, but, you know, each of the last couple of seasons, we've been worried about the twin-demic of having COVID and flu at the same time. And we have seen cases where patients are co-infected, but yes, I think simultaneously, we are going to see upticks in cases of flu, COVID, and RSV as we head into the fall and winter. And that, to some extent, is to be expected with any fall and winter, Mm -hmm. but we worry about them being more severe from, you know, folks that just haven't been exposed to some of these viruses in the last few years, and really the immune system may take an incredible hit. So we've got an early flu season that's likely to get worse, along with this RSV, and the the strain uh, pediatric hospitals are already seeing. So a lot of parents, doctor, they're going to be worried about keeping their kids safe. What tips do you want them to keep in mind? So this is hard because kids are going to school and they are really interacting very close together with one another. And it seems the consensus is throughout most schools that the vast majority of kids are unmasked at this point. Mm -hmm. I've said before that we need to have some flexibility for going back and forth with masking. And to the extent that you have a kid that you are worried about that may be more vulnerable or at risk for more severe viral illness of any of these viruses, it is reasonable to get them a good fitting mask to wear during these months. We can reevaluate after the holidays holidays into the spring when these numbers start to come down. I also think it is very important when we think of the generalization that kids mostly do well with COVID, um, that they do get their bivalent vaccines. We want to stop the chances of them getting sick to the best of our ability. We want them to be able to stay in school, which is where our kids want to be. And we don't want them to have some of those long-term sequelae of COVID that can sometimes happen. And also, especially with younger kids who may not have had any exposure to influenza over the last several flu seasons, get these kids their flu shots. Mm-hmm. Even if you've never gotten your kid a flu shot before, this is the year to do it. 
part of the reality, as you, you mentioned earlier, doctors, that if you've had COVID, you're likely going to have it again. I, I want to turn to some other news. Uh, a study out of Washington University revealed that if you've had COVID, several of your organs could be aging faster than normal. I was terrified when I read that headline, doctor. Are you familiar with the study? I am familiar with that study, and and that is a bit of a terrifying way to state the headline. What is happening is we have these receptors, you know, most familiarly in our lungs, these ACE2 receptors, and that's where COVID binds, and that's why we have a respiratory illness for the most part. But we have ACE2 receptors in all of our organs and other parts of our body, in our kidneys, in our heart, in our gut. And this is why some people do have different things that happen to them when they get a COVID infection. Every patient is different. The vast majority will clear the infection with minimal symptoms. But some people do have situations where they tend to have COVID bind to different organ systems and cause a little more stress. When you mm-hmm. have something that stresses a normal kidney function, for example, to a point of slight insufficiency, that's a concept we normally see with aging, not with a viral infection and not with an autoimmune process that could happen after a viral infection. We're just beginning to understand this. So it's not that they're effectively aging and there's the point of no return. It's that we're seeing insufficiency in some of our organs that is akin to what we would typically see in aging. And time will tell how much of that is reversible, treatable, and what we need to do to kind of manage this and to hopefully get to a plateau where there's not any irreversible damage or there's not any progressive damage and continued decline over time. Do you think, is there ever going to be the day where we truly understand how COVID affects the body? This is going to be a very decades, decades of, of looking at everything that we have experienced over the last couple of years. Even if COVID ended tomorrow and we never had another COVID case, which certainly is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But even if we had a finite line in the sand and this is the end of it all, it's going to take us decades to untangle the last two and a half years and millions of cases and long-term studies. Every single person that has had a case of COVID, which is the majority of of the planet Earth at this point becomes a data point for what is to become. We're watching life expectancies go down. We're mm-hmm. watching different you know, organ systems take longer to recover. We're really trying to untangle some of the implications of long COVID. So it's going to be a work in progress and a study in progress for a long time to come to see what the long-term implications of all of this have been. Here's another story on our radar, doctor. It's a Washington Post article uh, that reveals a stark shift in COVID death rates with uh, white mortalities outpacing deaths in the black community. What are we supposed to make of that? Yeah, you know, I was just at a conference this past weekend, and this was brought up as well. So, you know, we know about the disparities early on with not being able to get vaccine to our persons of color as quickly as we were able to get vaccines to most folks in more affluent communities. This being said, in the very beginning, blacks and whites were kind of equally apprehensive about vaccination in general. But as time went on and the education piece went on, the uptake 
in the black community actually started to outpace the vaccine hesitant in the white community. Mm-hmm. So we did have over time more vulnerable individuals and more uh, persons of color uh, take the vaccine and get that protection, which does decrease the chances of death and the chances of, of other things. Um, so now we're seeing kind of that table turning. We don't, you know, we wanted more equalization over time, but we actually have seen the tables turn to the point where those who are unvaccinated vaccinated and under vaccinated in a numbers game are tending to be more white people and politically um, on uh, more of uh, one side of the spectrum than the other. And those individuals uh, are, are seeing more hospitalizations and unfortunately more deaths. This is something that we can change. You know, we need more vaccine uptake and we need folks to get their bivalent boosters. Um, those who uh, eventually agreed to that first series of vaccine shots are, for the most part, agreeing uh, to vaccine boosters. I know in my clinics, when I say, hey, it's time for that bivalent booster, uh, I've got persons of color saying, yep, doc, I trust you that let's let's go and get this done. And yeah. that's so important. Well, let's wrap with this one last um, health story. Chicago saw its first monkeypox related deaths. Two Chicago residents died due to monkeypox last week, uh, and many thought we were getting the outbreak under control up until this point. So I I wonder what this new development means for public health officials and you, infectious disease experts. Yeah, so we know very little about these cases. They're not related to one another at all. But one important fact is they did have multiple medical issues. They were immune suppressed and their deaths came many weeks after their monkeypox diagnosis. So You know, while we are seeing more of a plateau in cases and we are seeing the reality that um, we do a vaccine and we do have uh, some options available to try and minimize case counts going crazy, it's a numbers game. And when you have over a thousand cases in the city of Chicago, eventually, unfortunately, we're going to see some deaths. And we have seen these two deaths now. So again, like anything else, you know, we have a lot more control of that particular you know, outbreak than we had earlier this summer, Mm -hmm. but we still cannot be oblivious to the fact that when this does occur in someone with health issues and immune suppression, this could be a life-threatening thing that happens, um, you know, after their infection. So, and we've seen an example of that, unfortunately, in, in two individuals. That was Dr. Mia Teramina, infectious disease specialist with Dooley Health and Care. Thank you so much, doctor. Have a good week. Thanks, you too.